0: Welcome to the Calvary Couples podcast. We're going to be in Second Kings chapter 5 and we're going to look through verses 1 through 27. And the theme of our uh, lesson here is going to be on this idea of trusting and obey. Uh, it uh, makes me think of the the hymn that we learn uh, some uh, many of us have learned, I guess the small children trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. And we look at the story of the life of some interesting characters in the Old Testament. Uh, we look at the life of Elisha and the life of person named Naaman, which would be uh, pretty fascinating. There's a couple things that we're going to focus in on. And the first is, number one, it's vital, is that God will use and can use anyone to accomplish his will in the world. Um, The second thing is that oftentimes the way that God chooses to accomplish his will in the world seem a little strange or kind of odd to us. And then the final part is, and this is often the danger when At first, we see God is using us in a way that we didn't expect. And then we see that God is doing something in a way we never anticipated. And then when it's all completed, the danger of it is to take the glory for ourselves. And the goal here is for, as believers, when we walk through this process, is to give all glory to God when uh, things turn out for his end and his purposes. So when we get here to the story of a person named Naaman, the commander of the Syrian army, he's, he's a mighty warrior. It's also one major problem that he has, and that's that he's a leper. So he has employed his military skill against Israel. And by doing that, that that specific thing is what God used to bring a little servant girl from Israel into his household. So this servant girl, um, which is really an incredible story of grace and mercy in and of itself, because obviously Naaman has used his military um, skill to overcome her nation, her family, and he has brought this um, Israelite girl into his household and really has her in slavery. But even still, she wants to see this person named Naaman cured, even as others in her family might probably have rejoiced at the fact that he had this disease. So I think that her attitude really is striking to us of what a a believer, someone who trusts fully in um, a Jehovah God that even though circumstances aren't what they would like, they still offer love and goodness and mercy to all those around them. So, you know, perhaps Naaman was a decent uh, master. Maybe he was a kind and he was a caring person. We don't know the specifics. And uh, maybe serving in his household was better than what she had left behind. We're not sure. But I think what it comes down to is that she respected the God of Israel. And it's God who is shaping her character. Perhaps she wanted Naaman to see how great that God of Israel is. So whatever the cause, she tells her mistress or the woman of the house who wasted no time in sharing the news with her husband. So what does he do in turn? He went to speak with his master, the Syrian king, uh, relaying what the girl had said. And we read about that in verses 2 through 4. So what does the Syrian king do? He sends a letter requesting that Israel's king cure Naaman. What a powerful thing. Clearly, God is at work here. He also sent along some very impressive gifts with the request. And if we had been able to travel through Israel and Syria during this time period, what are some things that we would have seen? Uh, We would not be able to select someone who could set in motion such important events. We most likely would not have chosen a captive servant girl. We sometimes fail to recognize that the things we view as limitations are actually qualifications. And these qualifications are what God looks for in our life. What matters most for someone to accomplish God's will is for that person to love God, to be available, to be obedient and committed to doing what God says. So a little servant girl has gotten all these things in motion. And now Israel's king is dismayed at the fact that the Syrian king is looking for someone to heal one of his soldiers. But the healing was up to God, after all. The Israelite king could only imagine one reason for such an outrageous request, that the king of Syria wanted to stir up trouble. He's thinking, man, he's just trying to create an excuse to come and attack us again. But the king found himself trying to respond to the events set in motion by a little servant girl, whose existence he likely never even suspected. Their resolution depended on hearkening to a prophet he never respected. And this is where Elisha comes on the seed. When Elisha heard what had happened, he sent word that the king was to send the Syrian to him so Naaman would know that there was a prophet of the true and living God in Israel. It's pretty powerful how these things are set in motion. God is doing something with someone that no one would have expected. And he is doing something at a national level through a little servant girl. Now, this seems a little strange, and many times God's methods seem strange to us. Elisha, rather than go to Naaman, says, Naaman, you come to me. So as Naaman approaches the house of the prophet, he was in for quite a surprise. Elisha never even went out to see him, not even to ask who he was or why he came. Perhaps God revealed all this to Elisha. We're not for certain, but perhaps what Elijah had already heard about the situation included these details. But refusing to meet this official whom he merely sent word, may seem a little bit odd to us. And I know, quite frankly, you read it and you think, boy, this sounds a little bit rude, perhaps even unfriendly. But it was neither of these things. Elijah needed to, Elisha needed to make a statement about his master, the God of Israel. Elisha is not here to take the credit for himself. He knows the miracle that God is about to perform. So you see, Naaman served the master of the Syrians who defeated Israel, but Elisha served the true and living God of Israel and the God of all the earth. So by only sending a message through his servant, he establishes the hierarchy among the various powers involved. So if it was you and I, and you can likely expect that Naaman was a bit angry, probably even skeptical about the authenticity of this prophet. He's probably thinking to himself, why did I listen to this little girl who knows nothing and now look at the situation? I'm going to be uh, a mockery. You see, his pride is wounded. He expected first to see the prophet and then to see some special ritual or ceremony that could restore his health, but instead he saw nothing special at all. And isn't that often the microcosm of our life, expecting God to do some incredible, miraculous, amazing thing, and yet God does it through sometimes the most unseemly of circumstances. So fortunately for him, his servant's pride was not as wounded as his, and they saw more clearly. You read in verse 13, It's amazing how God puts just the right people in our life at just the right time. Surely he would have undertaken any great task assigned to him by the prophet to bring healing. Might it not be worthwhile to give this unusual instruction a chance? Here's the truth. Pride and stubbornness have blocked the road for many throughout history, you and I included. Naaman could have been one of them. He could have missed out on the healing and God's miracle altogether. But for the logical open-mindedness of his servants, he humbled himself to do what Elisha had instructed. Obedience has its rewards. Naaman went to the river, dipped seven times, and found himself with perfectly restored health, as we read in verse 14. So, God's healing in Naaman's case was not contingent upon some ritual or practice. It needed only Naaman's obedience. You see, it mattered little what the precise instructions were. God could surely have chosen any number of things. It really mattered that Naaman followed God's instruction. And it really matters that you and I follow God's instruction. It isn't going to be some breaking open of the clouds many times or some miraculous event. It's simply going to be the children of God being obedient to what they already know that God has told them to do. We hear it said that nothing succeeds like success, but in God's world, nothing succeeds like obedience. What God tells us is not usually very complicated or hard to remember. You see, the Bible says even little children can understand becomes difficult because we sometimes do not think it makes sense. As though we were the perfect judge of what makes sense anyways, it would mean that we're God and God isn't God and that we know all things and he doesn't know all things. Oftentimes things will never make sense because we don't know all things. What we should understand is that obedience so often opens the door through which we come to understanding. We too need to swallow our pride and simply obey the Lord. So the final thing here in the last verses of the chapter in chapter five, Second Kings chapter 5, is a pretty Im- Im- incredible pivot. Because here's what happens. Naaman's attitude toward the prophet instantly changed. He understood that there was only one God, Israel's God. So here's what he does. He presses Elijah to accept, or Elisha to accept his gifts. But could Elisha have put the gifts to good use? Probably. They were prophets to feed, widows to protect, and perhaps even old age to prepare for. He understood, however, that it was more important, that his actions teach Naaman that healing came not from the prophet, that the healing came from God. What gift could he accept for something that God had done? And that's the right heart position for a true believer. How can we accept the credit? How can we accept the accolades? How can we accept the gifts for what God has done? You see, Naaman's action in verse 17 and 18 may seem strange even kind of quaint to us. If I cannot leave anything, may I take something? Naaman understood that Israel's God was the only true God. He misunderstood, as did many of his time, much about God's nature. You see, think about this. The pagan world often held that one could properly worship a deity only on the soil with which he was identified. Therefore, Naaman felt he could only truly worship Jehovah God if he could bow down upon the soil of Israel. He even asked forgiveness ahead of time for fulfilling his civic and military duty to accompany the king when he bowed before the pagan deities. Look at the change in life that has happened in Naaman. What a contrast with most of Israel, who gleefully adds pagan deities to their worship of Jehovah God, but this pagan casts them all aside in favor of the true and living God. So Elisha's response demonstrates that he understood the limitations of Naaman's newborn faith. Rather than instruct him more fully concerning the nature of Jehovah, he told him what Naaman most needed to hear. Verse 19, go in peace. You see, Naaman's gifts could not sway Elisha's devotion to God, but it was different for his servant Gehazi. He bristled at the opportunity that Elisha would let slip through his hands, first his feet and then his mouth continued to the perverseness of his heart that had already been set in motion. You see, he built this deceptive story and took what he knew Naaman would willingly offer. You see, greed is a powerful thing. Greed's a thing that can be all-consuming. Greed's a thing that can cause us to strive for the things that God doesn't desire for us. Gre- greed is the thing that can cause us to attack one another and stab each other in the back. Look at uh, Judas. For 30 shekels of silver, he betrays Jesus Christ. And here, Gehazi's selfish deception indicates a heart problem. He apparently was not content with God's provision for him and coveted more for himself. He placed his own desires over God's glory. Naaman's servants would surely have carried everything right up to the prophet's home again, and then the truth would have been out. As they got close, Gehazi took the gifts and hid them after the men were out of sight. So his lie to Naaman demanded a lie to Elisha, which was especially unwise, and Naaman's leprosy would move to Gehazi and his descendants. It's a powerful truth knowing that God can use anyone, even the most insignificant in human eyes, to do his powerful will and glory. And he'll often do it in the most unseemly of ways, incredibly surprising how God works, and the thing that he desires for his children is obedience. Not qualifications, not necessarily talents. He desires obedience. But you and I must be careful to guard ourselves, against the reality that we might take the glory for ourselves, what only God has done and what only God can do. And we do this so that we can point people to Jesus Christ. We can point people to the one true God. We can point people to the source of their hope, of their faith, and of their ultimate salvation. So I hope this lesson has been helpful. I hope it has been encouraging to you. I hope it has been something that we can each ponder to know that God was working in us and he's working through us and that we will give him all the glory. Thank you for joining me here on the Calvary Couples Podcast and I look forward to studying with you next time.